Well, good morning, everyone. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the day that we celebrate the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. You know the story, of course. Jesus doesn't come riding in on a steed. He comes riding in humble on a donkey. And more than that, the foal of a donkey. So it's a sign of the humility of Jesus. Our great king is a humble king. And he sets a standard for leadership thereafter. Then, of course, we have to look forward to Good Friday coming up. We celebrate the death of Jesus on the cross on our behalf. And then comes Easter Sunday, where we celebrate the resurrection and that our God is a God of life, that we have nothing to fear anymore when it comes to death because our God has raised from the dead and we too will be raised. So I know as well as anybody else the script that my part today is to preach from the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. However, <laughs> I'm going to go off script and I'm actually going to be preaching what might be preached on Good Friday. Now, the part of the rationale of that is that some of you won't get to be at the Good Friday service. You'll be working, etc. Um, the other thing that I thought to myself is we can't have too much of a good thing, can we? Uh, thinking about Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. The other thing that I was thinking was that I wanted to speak to you about the subject of love. We can't get enough of the subject of love and the love that God has for us. And I say that because I think that we are liable to forget it and liable to misunderstand it and liable to never really have it sink down deep into our bones. If only we really understood the love of God for us, it would be transformative. And I think that even as Christians, many times, we don't have a full appreciation of God's love for us. And so I, this morning, want to preach to you this message by way of even preparing you and priming the pump so that when Good Friday comes, it might even mean more to you as you think about the love that God has for us. Now, one of the things, one of the other reasons why I wanted to talk about this subject is because I think that the subject of love in general is very much misunderstood. And the reason why we fail to understand God's love for us, even as Christians, is because we fail to understand the concept of love in general. Actress Mae West once sarcastically said, love conquers all things except poverty and a toothache. Another actress from the same era was heard saying, love is a fire, but whether it warms your hearth or burns your house down, who can tell? Here's the paradox of how people often feel when it comes to love. There's something so wonderfully positive about love, isn't there? And something also so diabolical. Another person once said that if happiness is a china shop, then love is the ball. Sometimes it feels like the thing that brings the greatest joy and happiness can also be the thing that causes the most pain. And the real issue here, I think, is... That when we hear the word love, we so often have flashbacks to some of the most wonderful times in our life, but also some of the most painful times. Because where there is the sweetest love, where love is the most extraordinary, there can also be the most extraordinary pain. As love goes wrong, perhaps, or someone is snatched away from us through death. 
You know, if we open ourselves up to be truly loved by somebody, then we're opening ourselves up, aren't we, to the greatest possible pain in the future. So love becomes a kind of ideal for which we long for, which we hope will always be seated next to happiness. But sad to say, we often find that love is dining next to sorrow. Once bitten, twice shy. And some of us have many bite wounds from love. Cupid's arrow has struck multiple times, but the wounds are now infected. So with love comes caution. We unclip our sidearm. We take the safety off. We've used the word love many times with other people, but not always sincerely. And others have used the word love to us, but not always sincerely either. So whether in wounds received or wounds inflicted, love ain't safe, me think. It's not something we feel totally comfortable with anymore. Someone in our own day said, if love is the answer, could you please rephrase the question? Now, all of this is incredibly important because when I say to you, God is love, as the Bible says, or God loves you, how can you understand what this means? Human experience is going to get in the way, isn't it? We're going to start filtering God's love through the sieve of human experience. And so God's love gets tangled up in the net of our humanness, tarred with the same brush. God loves me. Sweet. Pass the ketchup. It becomes commonplace at best and despised at worst. God's love doesn't mean what it should mean anymore. And maybe it never has for us. We all of us have mixed up views of love in general. And because of this, we end up with mixed up views of God himself. Is it any wonder that today Christians and non-Christians alike struggle to understand God because we struggle to understand his love for us? So that's why today I want to try and put some air back into the tires of our thinking when it comes to love. I want us to do this by considering what people said to Jesus as he hung on the cross. Now even as I say that, you might think, that sounds weird. That sounds like the last thing we might say. We're talking about the subject of love and we're going to focus upon the nasty, horrible words that people spoke to Jesus when he was on the cross. That sounds kind of upside down. How is it that listening to people's nastiness towards Jesus is going to help you and I grasp God's love? It doesn't sound like it's going to work, does it? But all I can say here is trust me, as the Turkish rug salesman once said. <laughs> Only I can ask you to trust me as we embark on the same journey that I embarked on as I studied this passage and thought about it and reflected upon it. Because here's what happened when I thought about this and reflected upon this passage. Listen carefully. Everyone who talks to Jesus urges him to get saved. It's an extraordinary truth. If you go through it and look at every single incident, as we're going to in a second, everybody who talks to Jesus urges him to get saved. Now, this sounds like evangelism upside down cake. All the bad guys are preaching the good news of salvation to Jesus. That sounds weird, doesn't it? 
But as we're going to see in just a second, what this really exposes is the amazing depths of God's love. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but hopefully from now on you will notice it when you read this passage. Everybody who speaks to Jesus urges Jesus to get saved. Well, let's take a look at it. And if you've got your Bible in front of you, I'll invite you to be looking through and seeing what we've got to say. There were f- the first group of people, firstly, up, that were passing by that day for Jesus might be called the day traders. They were the people that we read first up who were just passing by. They'd taken time out of their day to go up, out of their way to shame Jesus and make him feel horrible. But these were the people, it seems to me, who focused upon Jesus disrupting the system, the day traders, those people who believed in the temple because the temple was the seat of economy in those days. The whole of Jerusalem's economy revolved around the temple. And so they come up to Jesus and they say, aha, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. Now, did you hear it? There it is. They focused upon the economic side, the thing that was the hot button, the raw nerve for them. But beyond that, the next thing that they had to say to Jesus was, save yourself, get saved. Next, the religious leaders. What have they got to say? Well, they end up saying the same thing. In fact, in verse 31, in some versions of the Bible, we have the word likewise which gives us the clue that they're going to be saying much the same thing as the person before. And they do. They say, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Huh, you're the son of God, let God deliver you. Right? Either you've got to save yourself or God has got to save you. It's expanded just a little bit, hasn't it? But it's still basically the same message. Jesus You've got to get saved, or you've got to save yourself somehow. See, the striking thing here, as you think about this passage, is that of all the nasty things that these people could have said, and there is no end, is there, to the level of cruelty that people can come up with, they choose to say this. If you think about all the options that they had, there were many options before them. They could have criticized Jesus' appearance. In those days, you were hung up on a cross in order to shame you. You were up there naked. They could have criticized him and laughed and mocked at his appearance. They could have mocked the fact that he had been betrayed by his own followers. Where are your followers now? They've all run away. They could have criticized the crowds no longer following him. Ah, where are all the people now? You're not so popular now, are you, Jesus? They could have picked on the trial. The fact that the multitudes demanded that a criminal, a murderer, be released instead of Jesus. Ha! That's because the people hate you. I kind of could mockingly say here that... uh, This is kind of an in-joke, but if Jesus was crucified in Australia... Probably all these mockeries would have come out. (laughs) Australians are very good at cutting people down to size. 
But of all the horrible things that these people could have said to Jesus to make fun of him, to, to poke fun at him, and all of the things that might seem to us very obvious that might be said, of all those things, the only thing that gets repeated over and over again is that Jesus needs to get saved. It sounds like evangelism upside down cake. Stay with me one, last long, one moment longer. None of this changes with the third group that we come to, which to my mind seals the deal that this really is the point that you and I are meant to get. The third group are those standing there in the midst of the darkness that covers the land for three hours, standing there in the dark, experiencing a miracle for themselves. They're living in the midst of a miracle, an act of God that has clearly affected them because what they end up doing is mishearing Jesus' words and expecting yet another miracle. That is, that Elijah is going to come down and have some sweet tea and cookies with them. Notice how bizarre this actually is. We are told that Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting directly from Psalm 22. So the words should have meant something to people if they knew their Bibles in any possible way. And also, it should have spoken to them about the fact that he was the true king of David, that he really was the king of the Jews. But instead of hearing that... They hear what they want to hear. They hear the word Eli, Eli, and they think that he's calling upon Elijah, bizarrely, to come down. He's calling Elijah, they say. Let's see if Elijah comes down and what? Saves him. So fixated is everybody upon Jesus getting saved that even in the midst of a miracle, even as Jesus cries out in a loud voice in their own mother tongue, they cannot hear him. Just by the by, I think there's a great lesson here, which we could spend time on. We'll only spend a moment on, but how often do we hear what we want to hear? I think it's true, isn't it? It's true for scientists. I, I am a scientist by training. Scientists hear what they want to hear. Thomas Kuhn's famous book, The, the uh, Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Skeptics often find what they want to find. Doubters often find what they want to find. The problem so often is not lack of information. It's that we simply want to see what we want to see. And frankly, we shouldn't be too hard on other people, on non-Christians, because we do it too, don't we? Honey, could you please first organize your, our taxes before anything else? can easily be misheard as, honey, could you please go out and play golf tomorrow? <laughs> Sweetheart, could, you, could we please have the night off together? Can easily sound like, could you please spend the night on the computer answering emails? So often we hear what we want to hear, don't we? And so as Christians too, we need to be sympathetic and self-reflective upon ourselves in this regard. But back to the cross. Why is it? Why is it that the only thing that people can think to hear Jesus say, even in the midst of a miracle, is that he should save himself? Now, there are probably several answers, but this one at least I think is absolutely true. Given the circumstances, given all that Jesus has gone through, 
No one can imagine that he would be thinking of anybody but himself. It's every man for himself. You know that saying? Out of the way, I'm coming through. Don't leave me a voice message. I'm not going to answer it. When all hope is lost, when it is a matter of life and death, when an animal is cornered, they can think of nothing else but survival. You know, in Australia, there's a lot of uh, water around the nation. People live on the coast. And so everyone gets trained in life-saving. And you are trained in life-saving that when you find someone drowning, you are not meant to rescue them until they are unconscious. Because if you swim to them while they're panicking, so desperate will they be to live that they will climb on top of you and drown you first before they themselves drown. This is what happens when people get desperate. When it's a situation of life and death, the only thing you can think of is of saving yourself. And so as these people see Jesus, they can only imagine what he is thinking. But what they don't realize is that he is thinking of them. See, elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus says, couldn't I call on my father and he would send down 10,000 angels to rescue me? With one word, with one inclination towards the father, Jesus could have been saved just like that. And so someone once said that it, Michael Card in one of his songs said, we think that it was the nails that held him on the cross, but it was his love that held him there. And that is absolutely true. He could have saved himself at any moment. But he didn't. Because he knew that then he couldn't save us. Let's think of an illustration of this for a second. Imagine for a minute a situation where the house beside you goes up for sale and some very obnoxious family buys it. You go over to meet them, they snub you. You go over and try to meet them again, they snub you again. A few days later, they come roaring in their SUV, almost run your kids down. Then they bring a contractor in to do landscaping in the back. They cut down a branch of a tree, it falls and it busts a hole in your garden shed. Now imagine that you notice a few days later that your dog has gone missing. And though you can't prove what's happened, your neighbor pulls up in the truck and smiles and says, haven't seen your dog lately, before they drive off. And then there's the loud parties. Then you notice something, some strange weed growing in their backyard. (laughs) And then the police come and arrest and the neighbor's out on bail. And your wife, his wife is so mad thinking that you dobbed them into the police that she threatens you across the yard. Now let's imagine you send them a Christmas card. (laughs) What's the probability that they're going to believe that your Christmas card is genuine to them? What's the probability that they're going to think that you genuinely mean anything that you say to them that's nice on that Christmas card? 
probably pretty much zero. And this is like the people who are around the cross, you see. They can't imagine that Jesus would do anything but hate their guts because of the things that they had done to him. There'd been this kangaroo court that had sent him to his death even though he had shown love for people and healed people and sacrificed to people all of his life they had been completely evil towards him the only thing that they could assume is that he hated them but he loved them Jesus was thinking of us when he died No one could understand that. No one could even hear it. They couldn't conceive of it, even when they experienced a miracle. See, the greatest miracle at that time was not the darkness, not the possibility of Elijah coming, crazy as that was. It wasn't wasn't the tearing of the curtain in two. It wasn't the earthquake. The greatest miracle on that day was that Jesus didn't save himself. But he showed an impossible love to us. In Romans chapter 5 verses 7 and 8, Paul says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This says it straight, doesn't it? Sometimes humans die for the ones they love, but Jesus died for those who hate him. I really don't know that we believe, and I speak for myself as well, that God loves us. Part of our problem is our human Hollywood view of love. But even when we don't have this human Hollywood view of love, we somehow project onto God a sense of obligation. Jesus died on the cross because he had to. God had a plan and it had to be executed and so Jesus went and just did it. It's kind of like when you have an assignment due in school. right? It has to be done. I've left it to the last minute. It's got to be done by tomorrow. And so I know I've got to stay up until three in the morning. It's just got to be done. It's a sense of obligation But what we need to believe is that Jesus didn't die because he was obliged to die for us. He died for us because he loves us. You know, I thought about this, about how I love my own family. And I can say with all sincerity, because I know I've daydreamed about it sometimes, What would happen if my family was in grave danger and I knew that if I could die, they could live? My wife, my children, I would do it. That's the kind of love that God has for us. Jesus is there on the cross thinking, if I just do this, if I die, then they can live. So I will do it. So what? So what does this mean for us today? Well, my favorite verse in the Bible, here's a giveaway, is an easy verse to remember. 
It's 1 John 3.16. It's easy to remember because John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. This is 1 John 3.16. And it's on the same topic of love. In this, John says, this is how we know what love is. Beautiful verse. You need to make it your favorite verse too. This is how we know what love is. This is the whole subject we've been talking about. How do we know what love is? How do we understand love? This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And here then comes the so what. The reason why we need to understand the love of God, the love of Jesus, that it is not just about obligation, is because when we really get it, it will transform us. See, we read this verse and we kind of think, oh, now I'm obliged. Wrong. <laughs> That's not it. Right? This is how we know what God, love is. Right? This is deep down in my bones, I understand that I have been loved so amazingly and am so secure in that love now that I can actually give out knowing that he will fill me up. Amen? This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us so we ought to also lay down our lives for our brothers. Kids here, your parents don't get it. I get it. I didn't think they got it when I was your age. They treat you wrong. They're neglectful. Perhaps they're too controlling. Maybe you're a Christian. Maybe they're not. What do you do? You love them. Your kids don't get it. They treat you wrong. They're neglectful. They're rebellious. Maybe you're a Christian. Maybe they're not. You love them. Your spouse doesn't get it. He or she treats you wrong, neglectful, manipulative. Maybe you're a Christian. Maybe they're not. What do you do? You love them. Your boss doesn't get it. Now it gets tougher, doesn't it? He or she is treating you wrong, controlling, taking you for granted. Maybe you're a Christian. Maybe they're not. What do you do? You love them. And as the list gets longer towards the neighbors that we mentioned earlier, it becomes more and more impossible, doesn't it? And yet, that is what the Bible tells us to do. And it tells us it is impossible because when you and I have come in the grip of perfect love that lays down its life for us, then it is possible for us to lay down our lives for others. I'm showing my age here in the conclusion. British New Age synth-pop sensation of the 1980s, Howard Jones, had an interesting path to musical stardom. It began with a philosopher spiritualist named Bill Bryant, who, while working at a music factory making instruments, he met two brothers, Martin and Roy Jones. And the three began to work on making Bryant's philosophies musical songs. Bryant supplied the lyrics, Martin Jones the music, and Roy Jones the vocals. And it was from here, this small group of three, that some of the key songs were written that later appeared on Howard Jones's double platinum album, Human Lib. 
How it was Johnny come lately to this group. And while it's not right to say that the young Howard stole the songs of his two brothers and Brian, you might say that he borrowed them for a very long time. This small group of men, including his brothers, provided the platform for Howard Jones to be catapulted into stardom. But the instant he was in orbit, he jettisoned them all like space waste. Now, the bitter irony of all of this is that the highest selling single of all times for Howard Jones on both the US and the UK charts was a song that was written by Bryant and that his two brothers were involved in the music for. And it was the song, What is Love? What is love anyway? Does anybody love anybody anyway? It was a song about how love is not about taking, but about giving. It's about self-sacrifice, about self-abandonment. And you can see why Howard Jones didn't understand love and why these, his friends didn't understand love because he had no love himself, right? They were just doing things the way people do things. What is love anyone, anyway? Does anybody love anybody anyway? And that is so much how our world feels, doesn't it? Back to earth. Love is only a dirty trick played to achieve continuation of the species, someone once said. Don't believe it. Don't believe that human failure destroys the possibility that real love exists. It exists, all right, with God. And the proof is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He died to secure our salvation, to secure salvation for anyone who would simply trust in him and receive his love and let it transform them. Do you struggle to understand the love of God, even as a Christian? It's been put on display for you on the cross. Can you imagine that if God loved you this much that he is going to stop loving you? Never. His love is incomprehensible and yet it has been shown for all to see as Jesus died on the cross for our sins. So even if you don't see God's love in your life and even if it doesn't make sense and even if life doesn't make sense sometimes, can I urge you afresh this Easter to remember again the love of God? God loves you. God loves you. May these words hit home to you and I. Amen.